The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. The scriptures. Thank you, Lord. Give us wisdom now, we pray, and we ask this today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Well, if you have your Bible today, and I I pray you do, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. And uh, you say, Darren, that's not a very Christmas verse, but what we're going to be looking at in the next four to five weeks, or what we're entitling just a short series called Foretold, the prophecies of Christ's arrival, the prophecies of Christ's arrival. And I want to start where it really all began, back in the beginning. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, Nelson in recent years has led you all through an almost verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis. And oh, by the way, if you're in small group study at 9 a.m. or a small group through the week, you get to study what book? Genesis. So you're just going to get a little bit more today, but that's okay because I think it'll all be worthwhile. We're going to start in Genesis 3.8, and if you're able to stand this morning, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word as we read it out loud together? Someone asked the other day, they said, why do we stand for God's word? And, uh, you know, there's really uh, a couple precedents in Scripture that usually when the Scripture was read, they stood. There's no uh, crazy other thing that we just want to be biblical about it. But if you're unable to, it's okay. And we uh, uh, just want to keep that reminder out in front of you as well. But here's what the word of the Lord says, Genesis 3.8, down to verse 15. These are very, very familiar words. As I was preparing this, mostly early this past week, I had to remind myself, these are very very familiar words. Don't check out, Pastor. Keep your focus. And I pray we do that as well. Let's hear it this morning. And they heard the sound of the Lord. They, that's, that's Adam and Eve. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the coolness of the day in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound because you, it sounded you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And, and so he said, God said, who told you, verse 11, that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then verse 13, God, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. The ball always rolls down, doesn't it? Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the main focal point we'll get to towards the end. Verse 15, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's the Christmas story wrapped up in one verse right there in Genesis 3.15. Can't you see the manger there and the bows and all the Christmas trees and all that stuff? It's there, and we'll unpack that. Many of you know this well. May we be reminded of great truths as we go forward with the series foretold. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you pray with me before we sit down? Let's go before the Lord. Father, thank you so much that the gospel once again is not just some random thing thrown into the New Testament that made no sense in part of the Old Testament. Father, from the very beginning and even before all time, as you were content within yourself, Father, and Son and Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity, 
you had this plan in motion, knowing full well who we are, what we would do, how we would respond, how would we revolt and rebel, you still sent forth your son to love us so. Father, but it all starts here. May the gospel, this first gospel, stand out so clearly in our minds. We ask this today in Jesus' name, Lord, be glorified. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now, I know I used this illustration a couple months ago, but I could not help but doing it again. This is Michael Jordan, arguably the best basketball player who's ever played the game. But what I want to remind you of is a statement I gave you a few months ago in the book of Revelation. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, everyone wanted to be like Mike. And even today, when kids and grandkids, and perhaps you've paid that crazy price for the Jordan shoes that have him uh, leaping up with his arms out and he's stretched out, slamming uh, just like he is here, the basketball and the goal. Even kids today without knowing it are wearing shoes that started with a campaign that says, be like Mike. In this category, it's be like Mike, drink Gatorade. In my office, I have Wheaties boxes from 1987 with cereal still in them, by the way, that say, be like Mike. And everyone wanted to be like him. Today in Kansas City, it's be like Patrick, wear your number 15, throw the ball and hope somebody catches it, but be like Patrick, it's there. But Mike was in a class all by himself. He was so unique among basketball players that when wearing his gear, you felt the impression that if you wore his stuff, his shoes, his drank his Gatorade, put on his jersey, that you were Michael Jordan. And then you tried to jump up and hit the goal and you couldn't even get halfway up for the, the space that it took. It doesn't make you Michael Jordan to wear his stuff. He was unique. Can I offer a similar analogy as we move forward here? Adam and Eve were offered by Satan the chance of being like God, and he was offering them an impossibility. He told them the reason why God set up a boundary is that he didn't want, God didn't want them, Adam and Eve, to be like him, God. The truth of the boundary is that we can never be like him. But Satan gave them the impression that if they just did these things, they could be exactly like God. Just like people who put on a jersey say, I'm just like that athlete, Mahomes, Jordan, whomever. But aren't you grateful that God is in a class all by himself? And there is none on earth like him. Isaiah 46.10, I am God and there is none like me. That's why you have to be so careful about how we worship God because he's not comparable to anyone or anything here on this earth. There are some similarities perhaps in how he treats us and we treat others, but there's certain things about God that we can never touch. And so today, what was the essence of Adam's sin? He put himself in God's place. What was the essence of Christ's obedience on the cross? He put himself in our place. He died for you. And so how can God make himself a people from such a deplorable stock of Adam's race? Well, isn't that what the gospel is all about? That what is impossible for men is possible for God. And if you're saved here today, that is evidence of who you are. The big idea today is simply this, is that in the risen Jesus, and if you're in Sunday school, we heard about this in Mark 16, we talked about that a bit. Our hostility, our enmity has been replaced with intimacy. We can know him. We can have peace with him. We have acceptance with him, delight and affection. And everything we miss outside of that is in Christ. Where Adam gave in, Jesus resisted. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And where Adam did, what Adam didn't do, Jesus did, and he did it all for us. And that manger that we look at this time of the year is just part of that process. But it had to start somewhere. And that's what I want to unpack today. Five descriptors that will be on the screen as we go through them. We're just going to walk through verses 8 through 15. 
Well, before we get there, you have to know, I'm going to give you a million-dollar word you can impress your friends with. This, in Genesis 3.15, is known as what is called the Proto-Euangelion. Say that five times fast. The Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't have the first gospel, nor did Isaiah or David's Psalms. Before anything happened, the first gospel is mentioned right here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This is the first mention of Jesus' death, of his resurrection, of his victory. It's the prophecy that he will bring victory over sin and Satan someday, uh, some many years later. But the first gospel preacher is, is condemning and saving. The first congregation, there's a serpent, there's Adam, and there's Eve. That's the congregation where two or three are gathered. In a sense, there is a congregation. But there is a sermon here with guilt and grace and bad and good news, and you need to be reminded of that today, the first gospel that comes to be. And Adam was told one thing, do not eat off the fruit of the tree. And every grandparent and parent says, been there, done that, and they still do it, right? There's some people who believe that you were born good. You're born with a clean slate. You ever told someone not to do anything? What do they do? They do it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. But the devil who had fallen from heaven is now leading a revolt. He convinced persuasively, as it were, about a third of the angels to come with him from heaven. And now he's here on earth at some time between that fall and this episode, this historical, literal episode that's happening in Genesis 3. And God cast him to earth, and now he has the power. And his goal is to trip up Satan or trip up Adam and Eve, Satan's is, and he is going to show them that he wants them to be like God. But we can never be like God. God is set apart in a class by himself, even as much as we try. God is God and God alone. Five things today I want you to see as we look at this first gospel. The first thing in verses 8 and 9 is the dispute, the dispute. Now, Adam here says, it says in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Just stop right there for a second. How is God walking? Is this a literal walking? Probably, maybe. We know that Jesus, and you, we're, we don't have time to chase all these rabbits. We know that several times in the Old Testament, there is a, uh, what we call theophanies or, or pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, such as when Daniel, and there was a fourth man in the fire, such as who wrestled Jacob, such as here. Was this a pre-incarnate version of Christ walking around? Perhaps so. The Father is spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. We don't know for sure. But there's enough that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees. We know, verses 1 through 8, we did not read this morning that Adam and Eve had done the very thing God told them not to do. They ate of a fruit. Whether it was an apple, whether it was an orange, or those nasty grapefruits, they ate of something. And it killed everything from then on. And so as Adam answers the question here as the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? I want to unpack especially verse 9 as we go through. Adam, there is no time frame here. We have no time frame from Genesis 3, 1 through 8, starting in verse 9. There's just a gap. We don't know for sure how long it has been, but we do know that God is not seeking information. God is not seeking information, but he's providing an opportunity for his conscience, Adam's conscience, to be probed. The goal is a confession of sin. The goal is for Adam to come clean. You've been there. I've been there. We've had kids and grandkids who've been there. You offer them a chance to tell you the truth, and they don't take it, and they just tell another lie and another lie. Sounds like politicians. Another lie, another lie, another lie, and it just keeps going. 
But the goal is a confession of sin. It's an account of action. And notice who initiates the call here. God is the initiator of all things. He calls them out. I just want to remind you that God is the initiator, the starter of everything. Everything in your life, everything in your faith starts with God. Who chose God? Andy, you and I were talking about this before service. Who chose God? Did you choose God? Yes, in a sense, but it started when God chose you. Yes, God's the initiator of all things. He precedes all things. But notice that word called there. That word called there is a very strong word. It's a, it's a word that means in Hebrew like a lion's roar. God called them not in a whisper. He didn't call them in a telephone game ear to ear. He called out to them with a loud voice, with a booming voice of authority. I would cower too, especially knowing what I just did. But God takes the initiative. God is always out and ahead. This is the same word used in Jonah 3, 4, where when Jonah went through Nineveh and he cried out or called out 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Look, the bottom line is this. There is no hiding from divine accountability. There is no hiding from God. Haven't we seen that in the book of Revelation as we studied through? They go to the caves, God is there. They go to the heights, God is there. Wherever you are, Psalm 139, whether you're at the heights or you're in Sheol, God's presence is there. And the Bible says in Genesis in another place, be sure that your sin will find you out. Or to put it another way, private sin on earth is always a public scandal in heaven. Private sin on earth is always a public scandal in heaven. No matter what we think we get away with here, God reminds us that nothing gets away from his grasp. And friends, this is why, can I just take an aside for a second? It's not contextual, but it does relate in application. This is why that if you're not a Christian or you know someone who's not a Christian, they are not seeking God. They're always doing what Adam tried to do. They're hiding from God. You know, in the 80s and 90s, there was a great movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. Many of you are aware of this, where we would go door to door. And instead of sharing the gospel, we'd take out a notepad and we'd ask someone, what do you want to see in a church? And we'd take that list and we'd kind of boil it all together in some great big Excel sheet before they had Excel sheets. And we'd put it together and we'd say, if we make a church just like the majority of these people in this neighborhood want, they will come to church. Well, we tried that and it didn't work. Because you know why? Seeker-sensitive services won't attract them. God will show up. Believers will show up. But unbelievers, they want God and what he gives. They don't want God himself. Be very, very careful, even as you share the gospel with friends and family, that you do not win them to something that God has not told you to win them with. When you dangle something out for someone to come to Christ, you have to keep dangling more and more things. Look, Adam is like every unbeliever. He avoided God while desiring his benefits. There's no hiding from God. If you're not a Christian here today, You cannot fake God out. You cannot juke God out. You cannot hide and cower and sit in the back out. God sees you. You will give account for that. Are you ready for that day? That is the dispute. Second thing here you see as we work our way towards that first gospel is the dread. The dread. Look at verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound. This is Adam speaking. He said, I heard the sound of you, speaking of God. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, I'd be afraid too, but we'll, we'll get there in just a second. But notice, he heard a voice in the garden. It's likely that sound, that booming lion's voice. 
that has been given by God himself to Adam, that calling out. Uh, and there's a dread that comes over him. And Adam fears. He's, he's guilty. He fears, and rightfully so. Guilt is crucial. It signals you have something wrong with your soul. I know many of you lament with me, and as we're getting uh, in that stage of life too, when you get the pain, pains and niggles, and man, if my back and my neck and everything would just be right, you know, as much as we hate that pain, aren't you glad that God gave you pain? Because it tells you there's a problem. If I'm running and I have a broken ankle, I don't want to keep running on a broken ankle. That would be worse than if I had pain about a broken ankle, wouldn't it? And so too here, when people come to us about counseling, there's a point where we bring out the scripture and we say, look, I'm sorry that you're going through this, but if you've offended a holy God, I'm not just going to say it's all going to be okay. It will be in Christ. You're forgiven, but there is guilt and there is consequence. And Adam's fear is profound. He's like a shaking leaf or a tree, but it's God's goodness It's God's goodness that seeks after Adam. He could have just left him. He could have just said, nope, I'm going to leave you as you are. And you'll see this on the screen, but God's goodness is humanity's greatest problem. You say, how does that work out? God's goodness is humanity's greatest problem. It is our greatest problem because you and I are not good, are we? Romans 3 said, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. There's none who seek after God, none who follow him. Because God is good and we're not, he must punish evil. And Adam knew this because God made him in such a way that he had that divine accountability already in his heart and in his conscience. And God's justice must be brought to bear. And you notice here, he says, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, but the greatest thing was not that God was walking. The greatest thing that Adam had to fear, and we have to fear, is the holiness of God. The holiness of of God. And he's aware of this, so he, he notices that he's naked for the first time. You remember in Genesis 2, they said they were naked, and they were what? Do you remember? They were not ashamed, right? There's no shame in them at all. There's no covering for his guilt here. God has not yet done that. That'll come at the end of chapter 3. But Adam is the state of every unconverted person. There should be a dread when you come to Jesus Christ. Look, we talk so much about God uh, not being a God who, 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 who hates people and all those things. And I want to be clear in my language, but there should be a dread when you come to see your sin before a holy God. It magnifies how good God is and how great he is. Romans 3, Psalm 14 talks about this. And that's the evangelism that we have. We have people who are trying to hide from God and they're hiding from God even in church and we need to bring the gospel to them. Can I just submit to you, even if you've been at this church for many, many years, do you know for sure where you will spend eternity? You may quietly cower like Adam did with some dread, but do you honestly know where you spend eternity? And this is why our greatest problem is God's goodness, not because God's goodness is a bad thing, but for unconverted, sinful, lost people, that sin must be punished. And Adam felt that dread. That's number two. Let's go to number three. Look at verse 11. Notice the declaration, the declaration. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Who said this to you? Who revealed this to you? Eve didn't do it. Adam didn't do it. The serpent didn't do it. God hasn't done it yet. What you're seeing here is Adam tells himself, tells on himself about eating the forbidden tree. And he's guided by a guilty conscience. He's guided by this conscience that says, I need to right this wrong. And God's question in Genesis 3.11 is more of a statement. It's like a direct question. He already knows the answer to the question. It's a charge of a heavenly court, a prosecuting attorney. 
And what is happening here in verse 11, he says, who told you you were naked? And God layers it. He says, have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? Husbands, it's often when our wives, when we know we're caught guilty with whatever it is, they just say two questions and we're just like butter in a microwave after 30 seconds, man. We just, we just melt down. We know we're caught, whatever it is. So Adam, there's a conviction of sin. And friends, I want to remind you today that you have to have the bad news to understand the good news, to understand the greatest news. That is number three. It's the bad news that makes the good news the greatest news. No one desires the good news without knowing the bad news. I mean, if I'm a doctor and I tell you that you have terminal cancer and I come to you and say, this is your diagnosis. You have five days, maybe if we're right to live. And I tell you that and I walk out the door and say, oh, sorry, I got another appointment next door. I'll let you be. I would hope that you would be calling every news station You'd be on every radio, you'd be a podcast, whatever you could to say, there's a doctor so terrible that he tells the bad news, but he never tells you the good news. Christians, if there's one thing we're guilty of, it's often that we just simply say the good news. We often just say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And church, is that not true? Does God love you? Amen. Does he have a wonderful plan for your life? Amen. But sometimes we need to remember that salvation requires knowing your lost and convicted of breaking God's law before you can get saved. And this is why God tells him of the declaration, I know what you did, I, I, I understand what you did, but it's a reminder to us that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts sinners. We don't convict sinners. Sometimes in our lives, especially as Christians, we think if we just say the right way, the, the presentation of the gospel, or, 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 or show their sin and, and get them in a gotcha moment, then they're going to turn to Jesus Christ. Some of you have shared the bad news with people in your life a lot, and they just don't care. There are those guys that I remember in Westport several years ago in the bar district who said, well, I'm going to be in hell, and I'm going to party with Satan right there. I don't want to go to heaven because I'm going to have the best time wherever he's at. They just don't get it. But what you need to pray is that God, the Holy Spirit, would do what John 15 says. He would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Look, we don't believe in an easy believism. We don't believe in a way that just, just pray this prayer and you'll be saved or a cheap grace where, where you, can, you can believe in Jesus one day and live the rest of your life however you want to. No, those who are truly saved with the greatest news walk in a manner worthy of Christ. But conviction serves a higher purpose. It helps us see a need before a holy God. And God told him that there's a declaration, you have sinned against me. And what do they do? They do what most people do when they're caught red-handed. They go and try and hide themselves. I want you to see number four, the disguise, the disguise, verses 12 and 13. And notice what happens here. He says, the man said, Adam said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And all the husbands said, no, we're not doing that. But Adam, despite God's question, he plays the blame game, doesn't he? She made me do it. It was her fault. It's my wife's fault. There's no accountability whatsoever. He blames his wife. And then Eve comes in in verse 13 and says, well, the serpent made me do it. And she basically says, she basically says, Satan made me do it. So Adam plays the blame game. He indirectly blames God for giving him that terrible woman. And then the woman turns around and says, not only do I have a terrible husband who's lying, but I have a terrible serpent over here. Well, who's, he said, she said, right? This, this case is going to be thrown out, clearly. It's a victim card. 
But Adam eats from the forbidden tree and God and blames God for the woman he gave to him. That's not how this works, gentlemen. This human tendency to disguise and cover up continues today. We love to avoid responsibility. How many lawsuits are in the news today where they sign an agreement or sign some, uh, I, I forgot to ask our resident lawyer about the official term, where they come to an agreement where they basically say, I admit no wrongdoing, but I'll admit to being wrong. I did something wrong, but I won't say I did anything wrong. I can't think of the right word for that. But, but they basically say, I'm, I'm guilty, but I'm not guilty. And that's kind of what Adam's doing here. He's saying, I, I did it. I didn't do it. She did it. Oh, no, he did it. Who's right? The answer is a classic Nelson. Yes, they're all wrong. They're all wrong here. And Eve, questioned by God, says, look, the serpent made me do it. You say, surely, pastor, nobody actually says the devil made me do it. Oh, really? Stay around people long enough, and you'll hear that more often than you think. Can I just say a word here to the ladies? And I, I, I don't mean this, and this is a word to the guys as well. We own responsibility in our homes. We should be the chief repenters of our homes, men. We should own that. We should take responsibility and accountability for that. Ladies, but I also want to say here that the husbands have for their wives uh, a special weakness for, for you as a wife or as a, uh, someone influential. And as seen with Eve influencing Adam astray, be very careful how you use that weakness, that love a husband has for their wife. Because Adam was seen using it, or Eve was seen using it in an ungodly way. And there was a declaration there was a disguise, and this is where I want to land the plane today. The disguise here, as you'll see, and Amy, if you'll put up that last little bit, the lie that's always embedded. I know we're having trouble with our projector today. The lie embedded in every sin we choose is God's holding out on me. So often, when you sin, we tell ourselves, you tell yourself, I tell myself, if God really loved me, he would do this for me. If God really was on my side, in my corner, all things work for my good, then he would answer this prayer this way. Friends, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. God gave you his best, didn't he? While you were yet a sinner, he sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins. And even though we cover ourselves up, he still says, come to me, come to me, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. So if you're here today and you are afraid of taking your sin to God, please know if you're a Christian, God already knows it. Confess it, agree with him, and take it to him. He's a good and just God. And you've not been kicked out of heaven because of your sin. Praise God. He's already kicked Satan out of heaven, so he has made room for you, so to speak, to come in by grace through faith in Christ alone. Don't believe the lie that God's holding out on you. God always has your best interest in mind and and his glory in mind as you do all these things. Let's go to number five, the doom, the doom. You saw the disguise there, finally, the doom in verses 14 and 15. And this is where it lands a little bit. Genesis 3, 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, who's the serpent? We, we've always understood that to be Satan himself. We'll unpack that in more in a minute. But the Lord God said to the serpent, speaking to the devil, because you have done this, what did he do? Genesis 3, 1 through 8, he lured and deceived Eve, he lured her into sin, and she in turn lured her husband into sin. And every person thereon has done that. Notice what he says here. Because you've done this, cursed or cursed are you. Look, every unbeliever is either cursed, every unbeliever is cursed, and every believer is blessed. You are either cursed in this world or you are blessed in this world. You cannot be outside Jesus Christ and be blessed 
save the good, common grace of God himself. That's a weird statement, isn't it? You're either in Adam and you are a sinner in need of grace, or you are in Christ and you are eternally secure and blessed. There is no in-between. Psalm 1-1, how blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There is no in-between. And what he tells Satan here is, you are cursed forever. You know, a question often comes up, can, can, can the demons, can Satan, can they turn to Christ? The answer is, Meh. Can never happen. God did not die for wayward spirit beings called angels turned demons. He died for you and he died for me. And 1 Peter 1 tells us that angels long to look into these things. They can't understand why a holy God would die for sinners and wrecked, wretched rebels such as us. But he did. The believer is graced and favored by God, but the opposite is a curse. So, uh, and that's why we often soft pedal this, guys. We say God is love and he is, but we never tell the bad news. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And so he says, cursed are you. And then he says that next phrase, which is kind of curious. He says, cursed are you above all livestock. Or your Bible may say there in verse 14, above all cattle. So all the beasts of the field, and he, you know, above all the beasts of the field, that means every creature is under a curse. And I'm pretty sure cats are number one on that list. Amen? <laughs> just kidding. I love cats, Peggy. That's a, that's a joke. He, she knows. Or maybe it's dogs or hermit crabs. You run your list. But everybody's cursed. You can't get away from it. Human beings, from the soul to the mind to the will to the intentions, every one of us is here. And you notice the devastation of that curse. This leads to earthquakes and hurricanes and and wars and fights and all the things that we know. There's nothing that is spared from the sin of Adam that is represented by what happened through Eve as well. And so he tells the serpent in verse 14, on your belly you shall go. Now, many of you understand this to mean that maybe at some point Satan in the form of a serpent had legs or some mobility other than slithering across. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that there's now no removal of this eternal curse that is on Satan. And so Satan, more than a snake, it's, it's including Satan speaking. How does Satan speak today? He speaks through men and women and children and leaders. He speaks through false teachers, but sometimes Satan even speaks through believers themselves. Do you remember in Matthew 16 when Peter came and he said to Jesus, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And do you remember what Peter said? He said, well, you know, uh, some of these people say you're Elijah, some say you're a great prophet, but no, he looked at Peter and said, no, who do you individually say that I am? And you remember that confession? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then you just hear the the crescendo music in the Hollywood movie go off. And then two scenes later, what does Peter do? (laughs) Jesus tells him, I'm going to die. And he's, no one's going to die. I'm going to go with you to death. And what's Peter do? Just several phases later, he denies Christ. God can even speak. Satan, excuse me, can speak even through believers sometimes. Be careful that you weigh everything you hear against what is written and revealed in the word of God above and beyond all things. That's why you take every word that I say, word Nelson says, or anyone who fills this pulpit or teaches in this church, and you weigh it against what the Bible says. You don't just take our word for it. Autopilot is the most dangerous spiritual condition you can have as a Christian. Be very, very careful. Devil is also known as Satan or Lucifer, Beelzebub, Belial, the evil one, prince of this world, god of this age, ruler of the air, accuser of the brethren, the serpent, the dragon, 
all those things. And he's still working today. Friends, I want you to stand strong in the grace of God. He prowls around, Satan does, like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. You must put on, Ephesians 6, the full armor of God. But look at verse 15. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. God speaking, speaking to Satan and speaking about Satan and the woman. What's that mean? Your Bible may say the word hostility there. It may say even tension, one Bible says. But the thought of it is, is that God will plant a hatred between uh, Satan and all those who come after Eve, all of those of the human race. There's going to be a tension. There's going to be a knocking of heads. And the enmity explains why we have global conflicts today, why Hamas and Israel fight in Russia and Ukraine, why people get shot in snowstorms in Kansas City last night when everyone, you know, run the list. That's why media and education and family, all these things. That's why churches in Revelation 3.9, you may remember one of the churches is called the synagogue of Satan. There is hostility between us and Satan, but the biggest battle started at Jesus' birth. You remember when, when Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill all those babies? Who inspired Herod to kill all those babies? It wasn't God. Yeah, it was Satan himself. And he tried to do that. And it continues until Satan stirs wars and conflicts and all those things in Revelation we've looked at and from Revelation 11 onward that we've yet to see. Satan is the author behind it, working with human sin. But at the cross, praise God, Jesus crushed Satan and purchased your salvation. Amen? Amen. And that's what he did. And so he goes on here and he says, He shall bruise you on the head. He shall bruise you on the head. What is he talking about here? Jesus, who's the seed of the woman. Jesus, who's the seed of the woman, will crush the devil. This is a metaphor for the devastating blow that will happen when Jesus says on that cross, It is finished, and Satan has nowhere to go. From there, that is your salvation. The first gospel came on that cross. Jesus purchased salvation, redeemed rebels, and crushed Satan like an ant in a summer heat when you see him coming in your house. He stomped him out. Romans 16, 19 says, the, Lord, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath his feet. And he's done that. And he will finally vanquish him forever and ever and ever and ever. So he says, he shall bruise your head. In other words, he's going to kill you. But notice what happens the other side. Do you, did you ever notice this? And you, who's he speaking to at the end of verse 15? And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Whose heel? Jesus' heel. Because you remember what happens? They killed Jesus. They put him in a tomb. They roll that 2,000-plus-pound thing Rock, circular rock, whatever it may have been, over the grave. Satan, who's not God, thinks he's won the victory. Three days pass. But on the morning of that first Lord's Day Sunday, at the cool of the dawn, Mary Magdalene walks up, and you know the rest of the story. The stone is rolled away. The grave clothes are there. There are two young men, two young angel men, wouldn't that be an assignment to have of God? Can I go to the resurrection? Yes, sir, go. And he says, he's, risen. he's not here. He's risen just as he said. Friends, the gospel of Christmas starts with Satan thinking he's won the battle, but he never has. He's always been second place. He thought if he could just put on the garb, if he could just wear the jersey, he could imitate like God, but nope, God is in a class by his own. 
you're here today, I just want to remind you with that fact. Whatever we face as a church going forward, whatever you face as a family or individuals, Satan has been snuffed out. Now the effects of his temptations and and things he throws at you will continue until Christ returns or you're dead and get called home if you're a Christian. But I want you to know the victory has been won. Do not give Satan any more credit than he deserves. In fact, he deserves zero credit because God deserves all the credit. And that's what we believe. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, this is a great call to come to know Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I know we say that every single Sunday. And it's just kind of like saying amen to a sermon. But I want you to think about that this week. You have a risen Savior and you have a God who saved you despite everything in this world. Praise God. Let's go before our Lord and let's pray as we close out today. The first gospel, you shall crush his head. It is finished and he shall bruise your heel. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at these simple promises from scripture and the responses of the people, the players, the real life Adam, the real life Eve, the real life Satan, We see in each of them a picture of what it is in this world and who we are outside of you. We see the blame shifting, the victim cards. We see the sleight of hands that move. We see how even in our churches today, we can take those same uh, methods and lies and and half-truths that sound good to win people but really don't. And yet, Lord, we miss the forest for the trees. I thank you so much, Lord, that despite the sin that we have and despite the consequence we deserve, that it truly is finished. We don't have to try and impress you. We don't have to try and impress anyone else. We don't have to try and live some way to earn your favor. We thank you that your favor was earned once and for all and only in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us truly, opposite of that, to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received in Christ. But may we never forget whatever Satan throws us You've already snuffed him out. Thank you, Lord. May our church be known as a place of grace and strength because of who you are and not because of us. As we close out today, Lord, be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.